I'm Greg Dollar Coleman. Welcome to Ellipses Thinking, a podcast dedicated to exploring the nature of the creative journey in process. If an ellipses builds the perfect bridge from where you've both been and are now to where you're next meant to be, then what intrigues me most lives in the spaces between those three tiny dots. From very earliest childhood, we are on a quest to understand the world. And not just the big, wide world, but our own unique perspectives and context, the world we wake up in each day. Led by the child's innate curiosity, we intuitively become meaning-makers. For some, and perhaps even more so those whose first language of expression is art, this search for meaning can become a powerful compass guiding the journey for a lifetime. And when the meaning we seek lives in the questions that reside deepest in our hearts, the needle of the compass can end up spinning out of control, providing confusing readings and challenges. This was certainly the case for Lola Devendish, whose life was uprooted at the age of seven and whose lifelong career in dance and theater was focused and fueled by her need to heal the trauma and her passionate desire to understand her story in order to be able to finally release herself from the burden she had felt for so long. I didn't really understand how brokenhearted my mother was but I also didn't understand how brokenhearted my father might have been, let alone myself. So in this sort of cracked environment, I needed to create. Through the process of writing her self-published memoir, A Dancer's Pilgrimage, a process that took over 10 years, Lola has finally been able to find resolution in her lifelong quest for understanding, redemption, and serenity. A resident of Salt Spring Island since 1981, Lola continues to contribute to the island's creative life as a dancer, choreographer, producer, and writer of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction. Recently, while sitting on a BC ferry somewhere between the mainland and Vancouver Island, I was drawn to a small advertisement for her book in a copy of BC Book World. What caught my eye was its description of this potent narrative about Lola's journey to live fully and authentically from the fertile ground of her artist's soul. When we finally met, this ad copy's description was indeed apt, just as I hope is the choice to release this episode to mark the literary celebrations of BC Book Week this week and World Book Day later this month. As I mentioned, uh, when we first spoke, I... I, I met you before I met you when I when I uh, read a small ad about your as then yet unpublished memoir, and I just felt this really strong compulsion to reach out and um, and as you say in your book, uh, the relationships which come our way are more than just chance encounters, and uh, in fact, as the focus of one of the upcoming episodes um, on this podcast is about the power of intuitive knowing. I am enjoying trusting mind. So thank you for joining me this uh, this morning. Mm, thank you so much. Yes, uh, I have found that the people that I need to uh, that allow me through another doorway have always come at the right time. 
without my understanding it perhaps until even later so mm. yeah here we are well and as i mentioned there was a book and in so i, I want to just jump right in to to that um and just to to sort of spend a bit of time i mean we're going to talk about the book we're going to talk about what the book was and how it serves you in your in your life um uh, and i i just i felt a, um we really should just set that up for anybody who's who's sitting in uh, to to listen to this. So, in the book, there is a moment that you write of, about seeing a home movie much later in life. But it was a movie that was made when you were a small child, and the image on the screen that you describe in the book is of your father dancing, and you describe it this way: "I know this man for whom I have searched all my life." I know him in the ecstatic movements of his body, the flinging of his arms, the delicate arches of his feet, and the utter joy as he leaps and twirls. I am, after all, forever his daughter. And this sense of echo struck me, knowing that after you and your mother and sisters had secretly left your home in what is now Belize, that you would never see your father again. And in fact, I suspect that at least on one level, the title of your book, A Dancer's Pilgrimage, acknowledges this lifelong quest for understanding and perhaps ultimately closure, and that that deep resonance you feel for your father. So to begin, I wonder if you might just share some of your earliest memories of your childhood and your relationship with your family and specifically your dad. Well, my memories, of course, are uh, are wonderful. Like it was uh, looking back, it seemed to be the happiest time of my life, and also the the saddest time of my life. My father and I had made created a, a bond because I was his eldest daughter. I was his first creation, so to speak. Um, and I must have known that uh, he must have conveyed that to me. So we were intimately close but he also as time went on not at first but my, uh, my mother began to see that he was suffering from um, mental health issues I think this was after the second world war he was uh, a Jew fighting on the side of the Americans uh, he also was a pacifist at heart and um as his health broke down my mother felt that we really needed to lead the sick this wonderful life that we lived in the jungle of Belize, mm. which you see, I don't remember the mosquitoes and the bugs and the things that were, you know, could cause dengue fever and what have you. My memory is that this was idyllic swimming in the river with my friends and my dad singing to me and, uh, and all of these things of uh, memory plays tricks, of course. But in fact, it was quite a dangerous situation because my father was becoming more and more obsessive about his faith, his diet, and his quest for purity and perfection. So when uh, secretly we left, because my mother knew that if he knew we were leaving, it would be impossible to actually uh, accomplish this journey. Um, it was a, a total shock to me and a complete culture shock going from the jungles of Belize to Britain, England in 1954. She was a single mother then, of course, as, as she created the situation, she became a single mother with, with uh, four children, which is not easily done at, in that era. 
So I think I never saw my father again. That's a long story, which will is mm. revealed in in the book. But there was this inner quest, I think, for my own perfection, my own resolution of the guilt. I felt that it was my fault as a seven year old child, mm. leaving my father behind. And I didn't really understand how brokenhearted my mother was, but I also didn't understand how brokenhearted my father might have been, let alone myself. So in this sort of cracked environment, I needed to create uh, perfection and uh, and beauty and resolution. Of course, I didn't understand any of this as a seven-year-old. I do now, looking back, mm -hmm. but that's what happened. In and it's interesting because I, I recall these images. You, your, your writing is is so so beautifully rich and evocative, um, the metaphoric uh, language, but the, the way in which you hold such clarity about, uh, and I think you refer to it at one point, is how do we hold on to these small moments and, and lose lose sight or sense of some of the deeper and more poignant and 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 you talk uh about being a, a child a young a, a young girl now um transported from the jungle to uh, to to the english countryside and and you described up your obsession uh for counting the stairs and for counting fruit in the bowl and people in the room and Later on, you go on to discuss or, the, or share the love of the orderliness of the lines and the green stripes they made on the grass after your grandfather or poppy mowed the lawn. What do you think the need to create pattern and order was all about? Well, uh, everything had fallen apart. All of a sudden, uh, we were no longer swimming in the river, in the tropics, in the heat mm. and practically no clothes on at all suddenly we're in England which eventually became very beautiful to me but uh, um, the shock of that I, I honestly didn't understand really what had happened uh, it took me a long time through my teenage years and my maturity to, to understand the concept so I think all of this was to hold on to something that I knew would be permanent um, the stairs were always 37, whether mm. I went up or down. The fruit in the bowl might change, but as long as I knew how many there were to begin with, um, I could count how many had been removed. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I still count stairs. Huh. And it's a different need. And now I do it with some sense of humor. But I like to know when I'm out on my uh, exercise walk how many stairways there are. And they're always the same. They never change, huh. uh, which is fun, you know. And so it now for me, it's a do, do I remember how many they were? Yeah, I do remember. There were still 32 or seven, four and five. You know? yeah, but it's yeah. a different. It's a different perspective now when I do it. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. It, yeah. It, it just it struck me that sense of, uh, as you say, trying to make sense of or hold on to create permanence when when you be, before you could logically piece together the reasons why it just the life had been pulled mm -hmm. away carpet had been pulled away exactly. um, shortly after that you've you found or it was supported and 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 fostered in you this great joy of of dance and 
And as you began to enter into that, I'm curious how, how that also played into this sense of, of creating structure and order. And, and as you share in the book, it was classical dance that ultimately gave you such rigorous um, structure. So how, how did, how did that play into the, the continued formation of, of a, of a, of a structure for this young, young girl? Uh, yes, I think that the, it, because of the classical structure, the ballet, um, that it would have been different had I been introduced to another mode. But this continued the sense of um, cr uh, striving for perfection, uh, striving for visual beauty anyway, uh, to begin with, but also I'm told, I don't remember this, but I'm told that I, I was jigging and moving about to music long before I was walking. I was holding onto furniture and bouncing around. So that gift was ever present. Um, and my mother, who had also loved dancing as a young woman, uh, I suppose knew what joy it brought her. And she sent actually all three of, uh, three of her daughters to the ballet class. And for me that, yeah, it was partly the sense of order, but it was also something to do with the music. The music, I, I think my body, I described something like it there, I'm not sure, I can't remember, but it, it felt as though my body was a sponge that absorbed the music and through the music, I was able to uh, bring my muscles to life and find that, grace and perfection and beauty that I was looking for that I felt I suppose I am I I had lost in mm. some way although it was quite different um but our life as children in the jungle was very vigorous it was full of activity so I have a natural energy that seemed somehow to be re it, dance was required to to use it up in a way, but also to express the emotions that I actually did not comprehend were, mm. were in me. So it really was a, well, again, I'm not going to use the word lightly coincidence because as, as you say, the relationships <laughs> all, all arrived as they did. And I suppose this relationship with dance was, was one that also was a, a was a gift in the moment and for a lifetime. Yes. It was waiting for me. I think so. So you brought the word perfection in and you and you liberally, you know, um, place that word um, in both an honoring and also an acknowledgement that that it has another side to it. Um, and I couldn't help but note how the verb punish was often paired with the concept of perfection, uh, as you described your journey, you know, from a very early age, when you say that you always wanted to be a good girl and prove the crumbling walls around you were not your fault, though you were sure that they were. Um, you, you, I picked up another couple of lines. Perfection was imperative. I punished myself by trying to be perfect. I can't help but but feel that, well, your, the, your child was was long, longing and loving for the freedom of the creative expression. There was also this sense of you know, counting the stairs became, it became the precision of that. I mean, how, how did, how did you navigate that as, as a child and then young woman? 
that sense of push and pull be between must get it right in order to prove something to myself and to the world and to feel good about who I was and the, and the crushing nature of pursuit of perfection. I'm actually not sure that I ever found the balance. It, it, it kept moving from one through the other, probably throughout my life. And even now I have to be very aware that it's okay not to be perfect. It's mm -hmm. still a, a thin sliver of self that um, doesn't dominate my life, but I, I have to be aware of it. Um, whether I truly navigated it, I don't know. The, the punishment, of course, was the rigor, the physical rigor, uh, especially with, with ballet. I was not naturally a very supple I didn't have a supple body I had an energetic lively live body but it wasn't particularly supple mm. so all of the exercises of stretching and reaching and pulling were painful mm. but then when you actually manage to create that line that all this effort had had uh, used up it it, it it was wonderful mm. and I think in a way it still is uh this there's a line in one of the poems that I, I wrote in in a publication I had made that um all of life is movement towards perfection and I um I stole it from somebody it's not my line can't remember who now but <laughs> I think that's been underpinning all of my life that the whole the whole of life is movement towards perfection and of course the ultimate perfection is reaching um, a, a place of spiritual peace and uh, gratification and beauty yeah. and that came so clearly through something that you said about being in the space of dance, experiencing that in your body and being entirely alone in your body and the closest you could get to being in a holy place. There was a sense of liberation for you. And, and so again, I think that that also balances it, that striving for the best we can possibly be, the closest to exactly um, is, is also that meeting of the divine space or within that space, mm -hmm. however you define that. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Just before we leave this, this place of perfection, I'm curious, has this dance with, with the, with the perfection shifted at all over the course of your lifetime? Yes, I think uh, actually once, once I retired from professional dance and theater, um, I began to explore that more. I was no longer, I didn't have to be technically uh, correct or, or right. So I could loosen myself. I could just explore a few other avenues of movement, um, which has been wonderful. And, and as that has evolved, I've been able to find my own natural inner expression that is not dominated by structure and by, by technique. Um, although the basic technique that my body understands is always, is ever present. And then moving on into what now feels like old age, it's a completely different challenge because uh, it's impossible to do the things that I once was able to do. 
um, and I, I, I and many of my dance colleagues struggle with this. Um, we find it difficult to let go of the memory of what we once were. And it's interesting, I've had in the last week, five dreams, all of which refer to going backwards. And I haven't quite understood what they're telling me, but I have a feeling what they're saying is don't look back anymore, only look forward. Uh, I've spent the last, what, five or six years with this memoir, looking back, going over all of that, unraveling it, climbing the stairway, climbing that spiral stairway to get to understanding. And now that I've accomplished this work, it's time to not forget it, but not to look back anymore at that, but to move into whatever is ahead. And I have no idea because my capacity as a dancer is almost non-existent. I can still move, but the way I have, have understood myself to be a dancer has disappeared. Um, so I have to now learn from my own lessons to move forward graciously, gracefully, and um, in in tune, waiting for whatever is is there to guide me forward. Hey, I'm Sayer, and I love Marvel. And I'm Kaylee, and I love someone who loves Marvel. <laughs> and we're watching through the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU, in release order. There's another order. For Kaylee's first time. And Sayer's 85th. <laughs> Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find MCU and me. Sayers obsessed and Kaylee's the best. MCU and me. I love the metaphor of the map, and you're really speaking of it here. The map unfolding as if your destiny was beyond your control, leading you to the knowledge that your role was to simply follow the road. And and, and I guess I. I hear in what you're saying now that perhaps that's part of this wisdom of how will I trust and and I must trust that the map is continuing to unfold. A close friend of mine is fond of of um, of reminding us all, but reminding me that the map is not the journey, and uh, and your growing awareness that although you had embraced and trusted and jumped into adventures that took you all over the world, um, was there a moment? in 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 time when you when you really became fully aware of this unfolding map i don't know that uh, maybe only as i as i uh, wrote the memoir did it really become clear i do have a a very clear memory of when before i left england i had a sense that i was being drawn into a tunnel but there was no light at the end of the tunnel. It was just dark. But the, the, the feeling that I must follow, I must go into that tunnel was very powerful. And so I followed it. But of course, at, I must have been, I don't know, in my 20s. Um, at that age, you're much braver than you are now. I mean, I went from England to Canada with $15 in my pocket and a bag of oranges. Um, <laughs> you know, no problem. <laughs> But now if I travel, I have to know, is there a hotel at the other end? Will there be a bus? Will I kind of get a taxi? Da, 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 da. 
Mm-hmm. So, and am I even allowed to take fruit across the border? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Um, so I guess the awareness has, has slowly unraveled itself. As, as the map was rolling out, <laughs> I just began to see, oh, yeah, that's what happened then so that mm. this could happen now. <laughs> so and I suppose even in that, you're underscoring um, the value to you of having put this down, but to others who may or may not journal. I mean, there there seems to be there seems to be some some something that I just want to press into here about how important it was for you to actually finally pick up the the, the pen, which we probably know as a keyboard, uh, and uh, and to go back through in order to work to do, as we say, do the work, not with, in this case, a therapist, but but, but with this therapist, I'm holding the book in front of me, right? The, yourself, yourself as, as, your, as your guide. So writing, have you always written? And, and if so, how, how, has it, how has it grown and shifted and impacted? I had no idea that I had always written until I started writing the memoir. Um, because I needed to have some references. To, had uh, I knew I had written a journal when I was at college, very specifically with the purpose of unraveling my hectic brain as a young woman, where everything is, you know, you're 18 and the world is just chaos. So that had been, um, I had really planned to do that, and, and reading it is, is hilarious, of course. Um, but I then, as I was looking through various papers and notes and photographs, I found that I had written all about my travels in South Africa. I'd quite forgotten. I had written about my travels in Mexico and had quite forgotten. Hmm. But I do remember that writing that first sentence that I was born beside the smoldering flames of the Mexican volcano Popocatépetl, and I must have been about eight years old. Wow when I wrote that. So I had a sense of drama at that age already. (laughs) Uh, I also had a sense that there was something important about me and my life Mm. that needed to get on the paper, but I don't think I ever wrote any more about Mm. that. And then since coming to Salt Spring and meeting with my mentor and my editor, Lorraine Gain, who she and I had a wonderful, have a wonderful connection and she helped me to tap into the writer and the poet that that lives within me and fortunately that has has all as my dancing abilities have receded the writing has taken its place um i find i i write best when i'm in my head moving i the writing comes from movement and then i sit down and write it and by the way I cannot write on a keyboard I only write in pencil because that way I can erase it if it's wrong (laughs) striving to get it right I love it but at least you're willing to to go those early drafts through (laughs) yeah Uh. so I guess I've been a writer all my life in in fits and starts and uh, maturing as as my age has matured yeah Mm. It's just again to to drop into your metaphoric language that the word choreography and and composition um, 
are are coming through for me mm -hmm. that that you're now now choreographing for the page um but yeah. it, as you say it's deeply rooted in that in that uh, expressive movement that is that is who you are that is so authentically you so lola as an artist um I get the sense, and I think you reference it as well, uh, of a deep appreciation for the value of of marking a moment. Um, and I was incredibly moved by the manner in which uh, you chose in your life to gift yourself uh, the reclaiming and ultimately renaming. You were not always called Lala. So how did that come about? I think that, um, well, I know that after my last visit to Belize, I've not been back very many times, but the last time I went was uh, as a formal tribute to say goodbye to my dad. And when I'm in Belize, everybody calls me Lolita. I'm known as Lolita, and um, which was the, the pet name for Dolores, which is my real name that I was given when I was born in Mexico. So somehow every any time that I'm called Lolita, that Lolita person is allowed to be revealed. And I I felt that that would be maybe the, it, it was time now to reclaim the name as well as the effort of, of uh, trying to put myself back in touch with that child that had um, enjoyed and loved and being being just you know vibrant with no nothing held back. So, but I also knew that um, the reason I had been named Lottie was because Lolita, for the English Lolita, it was oh hello Lolita, was absolutely. Incomprehensible, <laughs> <laughs> inconceivable. <laughs> inconceivable. So Who would have that's that? That's why it had become Lottie. But Lottie had become this rigid, perfect, parallel person that was always contained. And Lolita is uh, is a whole different person. I, I don't know if, uh, if the list. Many of the listeners speak several languages. I'm sure that they do. And you know that when you speak another language, another aspect of yourself is is allowed to uh, appear. So I tried to find the middle road. <laughs> and 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 I have to say because I can see you uh, across my screen, but of course anyone listening in will not. So I, I just just to to footnote what you just said, uh, the Lottie, your body went straight up, right? That full <laughs> spine at the bar and the, the, <laughs> the parallel arms. But then you just dropped right in and those shoulders started to move and <laughs> with Lolita. So, uh, yes, exactly. I I fully understand it. And, uh, and, and yeah, so I don't use Lolita now because of, uh, uh, one or two people do. Um, but Lola with the double L hmm. seemed to balance this double T. It had some structure of straightness, but it also helped the English speaker to say Lola as opposed to Lola. Hmm. Oh, Lola, you know, whatever Lola wants. Um, so we're getting there. <laughs> oh, and isn't that wonderful? We're getting there, but we're not there yet. And, <laughs> no. and, and, and on we move. <laughs> 
Louise, and, and I sorry, just wanted on. to say, by the way, I don't know, you may remember, but some some older people will remember that when I was 13, the Nabokov book mm -hmm. Lolita came out and it was it was rather tricky mm. called Lolita at that time, too. So yes. where, where I was using Lottie by then, but it was noted. I just love that. Again, I go back to how I set that up, that your honoring of the significant markings of the developments and the shifts and the changes and and not just doing something sort of you know lightly and and uh and oh, well i'll do this for the my, for my island community no this is all coming directly from from who who i see in front of me mm -hmm. so as you know as we, as we spoke at the beginning of the conversation um and in both of our conversations and throughout the book your life has been this creative quest to uh, to fully and uh, to live fully and authentically. And I know, I sense even in our conversation today that throughout that you've held this channel open, you know, at first intuitive and then intentional. It's a, a space to more fully be at peace with the little girl who left home at seven, left a life that you loved uh, and a father that you adored. And your pilgrimage for understanding, uh, and to you, I think you say pilgrimage for redemption, took you back to Belize a few times. And you just mentioned that you returned in 2019 to say goodbye. And you write, slowly I was learning to let him go and to give back to the universe. I had wrestled him to the ground many times and finally dispersed the anger flowing in me where it has become a stream of cool mountain water, rippling over pebbles of reflection, sweeping past the rocky edges of my heart. You knew that this was going to be your final closure, and that as such, it too deserved a ritual. And, and so you made your way back to the now overgrown property that had once been your childhood home, your first childhood home. I wonder if I could just ask you to pick up from there, the completion of that closure for you. Moving swiftly through jungle below the hotel in the way the spirit of belief moves, knowing only the presence of joy, I noticed there was very little left of the path I had trodden in my childhood. My eyes did not leave me, but I was guided by an instinctive knowledge, a body memory, a sense of homing. For a moment, after I had climbed, steps decayed and overgrown with roots and covered in rotting leaves, I felt unsure. Then the unmistakable whirring sound of a hummingbird affirmed my destination. Hovering within arm's reach, it thrummed, you're close, you're very close. I found no post or foundation of our former house, only memory lingering around the old water tank now filled with seedlings and detritus. The jungle had done its work of devouring human intrusion. Even the spirit of my father had diminished in power and was perhaps only faintly present because I was still holding on. I returned the next day, determined to follow the path even further to reach the river that had been so central to our lives. Paulita and Iskander's daughter, also named Paulita, came with me. Her parents, too, were now both buried in San Ignacio Cemetery. 
Nevertheless, she remembered my father from her own childhood. The hotel's jungle guide accompanied us to keep us safe. Jesus was the embodiment of a wild spirit, his soul born of the jungle. As his machete cleared the way, pods and rotting fruit dropped at our feet from branches above. No longer the swift current of my youth, the river flowed slowly and lazily, held back by the dam built upstream decades ago. Its fountain of stories was controlled in the way that I had withheld my passion for too many years. The sandy beach I remembered had become a riverbank of mud. However anxious to be immersed in healing waters, Paulita and I squelched our way into the river with Jesus patrolling the surrounding area, an excited guardian leaping amidst the tall grass until my prepared ritual began. Prayerfully, he waited for Paulita and me to complete the task of saying goodbye. As we stood arm in arm in the river, I read the letter to my father. I forgave him everything, but more importantly, I asked his forgiveness of me. It was time to rest my longing and leave him to his destiny without clinging to what could never be. The Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead was all I could offer him now, that and my enduring love. We burned the letter until it was pure ash and watched the particles float slowly down river, taking with them all of me that had been broken. Safe in the arms of deep friendship and the cleansing cool of the river, I let my father go. Now we are both free, yet still united in the infinite, intangible wisdom of love. Papa mio, I will no longer look for you, but I will live you. Gracias. I owe you my life to you. Mm. Thank you. Just so beautiful to hear it spoken by, by the heart that wrote it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the power of that river as well, the cleansing power of a river, not coincidental. Oh no, it had been it had been our playground for many years. It is a beautiful, beautiful place to be. You've so beautifully told the story of your life's learning or your quest or pilgrimage, as you described it, a lifelong quest for serenity and I can hear that sense of serenity even in 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 your reading uh we've been privy as readers to the dance of your life and I and I I just want to acknowledge and appreciate that I'm curious what have you discovered to be the most powerful impact of your setting down the story on paper and finally being able to set down this part of the journey there's um I have a sense of relief um, a sense of what now, and a huge sense of gratitude for the wonderful collaboration um, that happened with this book. Uh, I mean, I initially thought, oh, well, I, I'll self-publish, of course, not really knowing what it would take to self-publish. <laughs> I've done poetry books, but something of this magnitude. And the people that I needed to help me with that just were there for me so the collaboration which has been part of my dancing life uh, always Mm. collaboration creative 
energy uh, goal towards which we're all working and the detail with which uh, all of these people um, whom I acknowledge in the book, um, the power of, of that, of a, a joint effort has been wonderful to feel the support. And then not only that, but after the publication, uh, friends and people that don't know me very well have been able to identify with some of it, with the travels, with the losses, with the gains, with the creative. And I think the sharing of what I love has always been part of the performance highlight for me. And as I hear you describe that, I, again, I, as you may know, the, the whole idea of the ellipses, that is this, the ellipses, that sense of of the spaces in between, and you described sort of the past and the present and the where now, the what now. I love that what now. What and there's a new energy, a a, a clearing sense uh, of of that. I want to end with with two questions. One, if you were able to sit down today with the seven year old Lolita, what would you offer her in the way of wisdom? What would you say to her? Oh my gosh, I've done that on a few occasions. Um, I would, I would tell her I did my best. Mm. She's she's accused me many times of not really looking after her, but I did my best. Thank you, and I want to turn it. What is the seven-year-old Lolita now offering you? Lola, by the way of wisdom, by the way of a gift. What is she telling you as she sits opposite you? Oh, she's saying just put on your red skirt and twirl and twirl and twirl because that way it'll all just fly away and you oh. <laughs> you'll have a wonderful day. <laughs> and on that, I will. Thank you. Thank you, Lolita. Thank you, Lola. This has just been, it's been so delightful just to, to connect with, with the soul who, who share, shared her, her story. And, uh, and I'm deeply appreciative. Well, thank you, Greg, because uh, I did not know you at all until you appeared out of the blue. And I think you've been part of my journey to help me to loosen all of those threads and let them go and swirl in my red shirt, skirts. <laughs> take, that, take that swirl today, will you? <laughs> I will. <laughs> Lala's book, A Dancer's Pilgrimage, can be ordered through the Rainbow Publishers section of ravenchapbooks.ca. That's R-A-V-E-N-C-H-A-P-B-O-O-K-S dot C-A. Ellipses Thinking is a proud member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. It is produced by Jordan Dollar-Coltman and Greg Dollar-Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. As a resident of Vancouver Island, I wish to acknowledge that I am a visitor on the traditional lands of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Snonoas and Qualicum people. The first peoples have been here for over 10,000 years. 
their ancestors still here with us in the sky, the land, the ocean, and all of the beings that share this sacred place. As a settler, I gratefully embrace the opportunities for growth as integral to my personal journey of collaboration and reconciliation as I learn and further support the possibilities that lay ahead. I remain committed to practicing my craft in a decolonized space. Mm-hmm.